Hey there, you're listening to the audio-only podcast of the Ezra Levant Show. This is the March 8th edition, and we have some really exciting stuff lined up. If you want to watch the full version of this show, go to rebelnewsplus.com and sign up. You'll be glad that you did. The grifting duo is back at it again, Megan and Harry. They twist the knife that is hanging out of Harry's grandma's back. It's March 8th, I'm Kean Bexty, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. You may have tuned in, or maybe not. You might have had better things to do, like cleaning your gutters. If you didn't, don't worry. What went down wasn't anything outside of what was predicted by anyone who has seen how Meghan Markle has been operating over the past couple of years. To summarize, Meghan announced that the troubles all began when it was made clear that her soon-to-be-born son wasn't going to be the center of attention, the center of the monarchy, and wasn't going to be granted the title of prince. Of course, the queen is the only one with that final say on titles, and the implication that Meghan Markle made was clear. She was trying to imply that the queen was somehow a racist. In the few short minutes, Meghan Markle managed to imply that Queen Elizabeth was a black baby hating racist. In reality, the son of a low-ranking member of the royal family doesn't get to be a prince. That's just not how it works. Meghan didn't get what she wanted, though, so she decided to try and blow it all up. I gotta say, did he call it or did he call it? I'm not a fan of hers. And uh, I would say this, and she probably has heard that, but uh, I wish a lot of luck to Harry. She's going to need it. But it wasn't just 45 that didn't like Markle. Before she tried to blow up the royal family, she did the same thing to her own family. She has a bit of a habit of destroying things. It's part of her character. And you know what they say about leopards and their spots. Listen to what Meghan Markle's sister had to say about her. In an interview with The Sun, Samantha revealed... Meghan's a social climber. Hollywood has changed her. I think her ambition is to become a princess. The royal family would be appalled by what she's done to her own family. But the interview that Markle arranged with her friend Oprah wasn't just a few hours of her dunking on the Queen and the royal family and basically all of Britain. She dunked on herself too. Watch this. No, nobody prepares you. No, no I mean, it's, it's, no, but even down, yeah, sorry, but even down to like the national anthem. No one thought to say, oh, you're American. You're not going to know that. That's me late at night Googling, how, what's the national? I've got to learn this. I don't want to embarrass them. I need to learn these 30 mm -hmm. hymns for a church. All of this is televised. We were doing the training behind the scenes because I just wanted to make them proud. Okay. Did you see that part where Harry remembered his place? He isn't just booted from the royal family. He's now a commoner's doormat. But enough about Harry, this is about Meghan. She actually admitted on primetime TV that she had trouble Googling the national anthem of the country that she voluntarily joined. Like, that was somehow a chore or a task for her. Meghan, of course, was never really in this project or in the royal family to be part of 
the family. It was all a ladder for her, ladder climbing, at the expense of the people who have dedicated their lives to public service, Her Majesty the Queen and pretty much everyone else in the royal family. Seriously, imagine being a part of the royal family. Put yourself in the Queen's shoes. Put, your, put yourself in Prince Philip's shoes. You spend nearly a century fighting for your people, holding your country together, and the Commonwealth, I might add, together during World War II, during the Cold War, and every crisis since. Nothing but steadfast duty from real members of the firm, as they call the royal family. Putting others before yourself. That's just something that Meghan can't do, and perhaps that's why record numbers of her staff quit some of the most prestigious jobs in the world to get away from this seditious newcomer. It's not often that people with top positions in the royal household give up their posts, so when three walk out in quick succession, rumours are inevitable. In May 2019, it was revealed that Meghan Markle's right-hand woman, Amy Pickerel, was leaving, making her the third member of the Duchess's staff to quit within a matter of months. A royal insider confirmed to the Daily Mail, Amy is leaving. It's very sad for her colleagues as she is a really popular member of staff. Pickerel was expected to stay on and succeed Markle's private secretary, Samantha Cohen, who, after 17 years with the royal family, also left her post. Markle's personal assistant also quit her job and caused a stir when she bolted less than six months after Meghan and Harry's wedding. Apparently, Meghan's personal assistant couldn't handle the stress of the job. As a source told The Mirror, she put up with quite a lot. Meghan put a lot of demands on her and it ended up with her in tears. It's, um... Hard. It's important to remember that the reason Meg and Harry quit the royal family was because they wanted privacy, and they just couldn't get that in London. They blamed the media, they blamed everyone but themselves, so they fled to North America. Of course, they didn't start out living in the United States or in California. They made a pit stop in Canada, and that's where they siphoned hundreds of thousands of dollars off the taxpayer to cover their massive security bill. I actually went to their home in Victoria, British Columbia, to see exactly what might be causing the couple to not be able to afford their own security. And well, wouldn't you know, the property was absolutely gorgeous, despite them having no income. And it was located on the coast of one of the most exclusive parts of Vancouver Island, one of the most exclusive parts of Canada. But it turned out they weren't even there when I showed up. They were already scoping out their new digs in California. Woe is them, right? Check out the place that they're actually living, by the way. Yes, that is a playground on the left. And yes, this place does have a tennis court. How did they celebrate this newfound privacy across the, uh, across the pond, by the way? Well, of course, Megan, she invited Oprah to come to their home so that she could air her dirty laundry. I don't recommend you actually watch this train wreck because watching any amount of paint dry is more worth your while. The interview kicks off with Megan front and center. It has always been about her. You see, Harry joins in a little bit afterwards, but only after Markle lets the world know that this is really her show. This is about Meghan. Harry, of course, has never been able to say no to Meghan. He has issues dealing with narcissists. If anyone needs help in that family, it's Harry. Someone close to him should really refer him to a specialist in supporting people married to toxic narcissists like Meghan Markle is. She really is a narcissist. Markle never wanted to be a real princess. That takes a lot of work. You see, hard work, duty, service, humility, sacrifice. Maggie just doesn't have those qualities. She wanted to be a Disney princess. All the fame, none of the sacrifice. Remember that time that Harry actually asked the CEO of Disney if he could make his wife a Disney princess? Well, check this out. Yes. 
But that's enough of that cringe for the day, and it's time to move on to another, probably actually worse version of cringe, the Trudeau government's denial of a genocide. Despite the world finally waking up to China and the menace that they are and the genocide that they are conducting, just a few days ago, Justin Trudeau's government abstained from a vote that was held in Canada's parliament that ended up decisively declaring a genocide in China. Why did Justin Trudeau not partake in that vote? Why did his cabinet ministers not partake? Parliaments in Europe actually followed suit after Canada, but for some reason, Trudeau and all of his cabinet ministers decided to ignore the vote. They skipped town for just a few hours while Parliament acknowledged systematic ethnic cleansing ac across the Pacific. We're going to have one of my favorite independent journalists, Spencer Fernando, on the show to talk about that train wreck. We'll be right back after this. Now we have Spencer Fernando joining us from his publication, uh, SpencerFernando.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Spencer. How are you doing? Not bad. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on. We're talking today about Justin Trudeau's cowardly abstention from the Uyghur, uh, Uyghur genocide uh, vote that happened in Parliament just a few days ago now. What was really interesting about this is that his caucus actually uh, almost turned on him, I, I, I might say, and I, I want to know what you think about that. His caucus actually voted in favor of this motion, but his cabinet, of course, all abstained, including Mark Garneau, who abstained on behalf of the government of Canada, which isn't something that actually happens in Westminster uh, parliaments. What do you think about Justin Trudeau's caucus uh, actually voting in favor of this motion? Yeah, well, I think, you know, for some time it's been kind of uh, disturbing how pro-China uh, Trudeau has seemed. And I think it got to the point where it was even too much for his own party. I mean, you know, many people, you can criticize Trudeau, you know, all you want, but many people in the Liberal Party, I think they see themselves as supporters of human rights. Uh, and as, you know, people who, you know, have good morals when it comes to, you know, how countries are treating people. And I think it just got too much for even them to, you know, constantly be either defending China or kind of being soft on China. And I reached a tipping point. You know, I, I would imagine behind the scenes that he and the cabinet were trying to convince them to vote, uh, to just all abstain or vote against it. But I think, you know, they probably sent the message said, look, you know, we can't go back to our constituents and say that we're not holding China accountable for their actions. And, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's think, a, yeah. They they got to a point where even they couldn't defend Trudeau's position on China. I think that's a great point. And in your article, you actually mentioned a survey that said fifty nine percent of Canadians actually oppose that abstention, and and that translates to a vast majority of Canadians that are really opposed to Justin Trudeau's position on China. I think across the board, I think Canadians are starting to get tired of this government apologizing for China, China time and time again, acting like, you know, they have the Michael's best interests at heart when, you know, they, we, more facts come out every day that Justin Trudeau's government is beholden to the government. They don't really have any leverage at all from, uh, you know, his former minister of foreign affairs having a massive mortgage taken out with the Bank of China. Hmm. Now, you, you mentioned that 
that the MPs wouldn't be able to go back to their constituents. Do you think that this is going to have this is going to translate into a loss of seats for Trudeau should an election be called here pretty shortly, as many people predict? Yeah, well, I mean, the polls don't show that happening. Uh, he's he's still leading the polls. Uh, the problem the Conservatives have is uh, as unpopular as Trudeau may be right now, it looks like they're less popular and Aaron O'Toole mm-hmm. is not resonating. And, you know, I think I've seen, you know, a lot of people, including myself, talking about it. Uh, you know, they did just hire someone who had worked for uh, Huawei. And that's the kind of stuff that undermines your anti-China, anti-Huawei messaging. And yeah, what, really, what, could a, a, what could Aaron do? What could Aaron yeah. do uh, to to sh- to shift this? What he, he seems like he's almost dug himself into a bit of a hole. Yeah, it's such an odd move because that's one area where they had, I would say, uh, the total moral and political high ground over the Liberals was on China. I mean, you just get Liberal MPs to basically vote against Trudeau, against what Trudeau wanted, uh, kind of embarrassing him and the Liberal Party. And then you, after, you know, months of anti-Huawei, anti-China rhetoric, then you go and hire someone to work for them. I know people say, oh, he's not a bad guy. I'm sure he's not a bad guy, you know. It's, it's, it's fine, but just messing up your own messaging that way and then expecting your own party supporters to go and be like, oh, well, uh, yo, it's, it's totally different when the conservatives hire someone from there than if the liberals did. And, I mean, it's just embarrassing to make that argument. So, uh, yeah, I'm very surprised that they would do that to themselves. It seems frustrating to me, watching from the outside, how the Canadian government operates. It seems almost like every lobby and interest group and even foreign government seems to be able to you know, run roughshod over the government and the opposition for, for whatever issue it is, whether it's the dairy lobby or China, organizations that just don't have, I think, the interests of Canadians at heart, um, are able to so easily manipulate uh, and and sort of have the pseudo control over members of our government and members of the opposition, whether it was Andrew Scheer, Justin Trudeau, or Aaron O'Toole. My point being that this, this individual that he actually just hired, Aaron O'Toole, was a former employee of not just Huawei, but also Andrew Scheer. Why, why do you think this runs so thoroughly through not just the Conservative Party, but the Canadian government and our institutions? You know, I'm not really sure. Sometimes I wonder if it's just there's not enough people who really want to go into government. So you kind of you see just a recycling of the same people. You know, they go work for the government and then their government experience gets them hired by corporations who want to influence the government. And then they do a stint there and then they go back and they work for the government again. Right. This is kind of, you know, rotating around. But I think the problem is just the messaging on this one, right? It's it's just, you know, you make being against China and against Huawei your whole image. I mean, Aaron O'Toole said that China's committing industrial espionage. He said that uh, Huawei is a threat to Canada. And then you go and hire somebody who worked for them. And what, you expect people to just ignore that or pretend that didn't happen? Uh, it's just It's just very strange. And this is the kind of thing that demoralizes people. And that's the last thing the conservatives can afford. If you look at their poll numbers, yeah, you're right. I, I, I've I've seen many people uh, who are 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 tired of. Not, it, I I don't know if I'd call this a scandal, but they're just tired of being demoralized, demoralized time and time again. Um, I I really just have no idea what Aaron O'Toole is going to be able to do to sort of regain this credibility because I I I think that. Uh, China would have been the issue to fight the next election on. I think that if Aaron O'Toole kept his powder dry and his hands clean, um, he would have had that credibility to fight on a, a ballot issue of of international significance. Do you think that he's going to be able to turn this around? 
Well, I mean, we'll see. I think the, the, the problem for them is this was an issue where they had a clear advantage, and now that's been muddied somewhat, right? So the Liberals, they can't really win on China because I think public perception is pretty baked in that they've been too weak. But they can certainly muddy the waters a bit and say, hey, we, we may not be great on China, but, you know, the Conservatives aren't great either. And they did sign that foreign investor protection agreement that locked us in for, what, 25 years with a deal with China that's not so good for Canada. So they can muddy the waters a bit and then shift the conversation uh, in another direction. So the Conservatives may have taken a clear win on this issue and, and made it a little bit uh, muddy. Certainly. I want to ask you from the international perspective how this looks, uh, how Canada looks to the international community. Um, you know, just days after the Canadian Parliament approved this this motion to call it a genocide, to call it what it is, because that is what it is, uh, the, the Dutch Parliament actually in Europe did the same thing. And it seems like this is sort of a tipping point, I think, for global politics. Do you think that people are looking at Justin Trudeau's government as sort of a cowardly institution that isn't able to even admit to the most basic facts of what's going on in China? Yeah, I think what their allies would be seen as unreliable, right? I mean, you look at the Five Eyes, for example, there's you know intelligence sharing on threats. You know, China's building up their navy massively. Um, uh, other countries in the region, democratic countries, are trying to build up their militaries as well to somewhat counter China. And here's Ken. I mean, I'm not even going to get into the issues with our military and procurement and all the scandals there, but I think our allies would just look at Canada and say, you know, we seem naive and unserious and not really a trusted partner right now. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Fernando, for coming on the Ezra Levant show today. We'll hopefully have you back soon. Yeah, no problem. All right, and that was Spencer Fernando. You can see all of his work at spencerfernando.com. There will be more right after this. You probably are aware of the individual. It's about Pastor James Coates. He's the Christian pastor who was jailed for quite literally preaching to the choir. Pastor James Coates is in a maximum security prison because the government of Alberta refuses to bend the knee to basic decency, to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, to the rights of religious folk everywhere, really. And this is Jason Kenney's government, someone who's historically supported, or at least said they supported religious freedoms. Pastor James Coates is in maximum security prison for hosting a service at his church as the pastor. He's sitting alongside predators, rapists, murderers, all because he's a Christian pastor during a pandemic who refused to close down his church as the government asked him to. Our colleague Sheila Gunn-Reed was on location at the Grace Life Church near Edmonton this weekend reporting on this story and she has an update for you. Check this out. Sheila Gunn-Reed for Rebel News and I'm just wrapping up my fourth week here attending Sunday services at Grace Life Church west of Edmonton. Now for those of you who have been following along, you already know Grace Life Pastor James Coates has been held as a prisoner of conscience in provincial custody since February 16th when he turned himself in for breaking a provincial health order. Now that order was to limit his church to 15% of fire code capacity and force the congregation to wear masks during worship services. As it sits right now, Pastor Coates will remain in the maximum security Edmonton Remand Centre until his trial May 3rd to 5th, 2021. You see, Pastor Coates technically does qualify for bail, but he cannot comply in good conscience with the bail conditions that would limit his church service to 15% of fire code capacity and force the congregation to wear masks. 
Pastor Coates cannot agree to those bail conditions, so he languishes behind bars. Agreeing to those conditions would violate his faith and the faith of his entire congregation. Now, last Friday, an appeal of those bail conditions was held and then denied. At that bail hearing, Crown Prosecutor Karen Thorsgood remained anonymous, saying that she was simply the public health prosecutor and that she feared for her own safety. A secret prosecutor in Canada, imagine that. Now, once again, I showed up at the church at five in the morning on the suspicion that the RCMP may come to change the locks. I suspected this because one of the reasons Crown Prosecutor Karen Thorsgood is insisting on those onerous anti-Christian bail conditions is that she said, James Coates, once he is released, will return to preach to a capacity crowd here. And that's just dangerous, she said. Well, the church is at capacity and has been consistently at capacity since the middle of the summer with no cases of COVID, by the way. So the only way to stop this church from being at capacity would be to prevent people from physically coming in the door. But I'm happy to say my early morning stakeout was fruitless once again. Associate Pastor Jake Spenced was again on the pulpit. Again, media interest continues to wane. Their bloodlust for seeing Christians taken away in handcuffs has not been satiated. The media showed up once again filming from the ditch. Only one of them were wearing masks. And I did not see a lot of social distancing if you care about that sort of thing, and I definitely don't. Also, in a slight return to normalcy, instead of seven police cruisers, there were only two this week, and those police cruisers left shortly after 10 a.m., as opposed to doing what they normally do, and that's staying for the duration of the day. No tickets were issued here today, and this continues to be not a spectacle, but absolutely normal worship services in the most abnormal of times. I'm no longer filming inside the church because this is their church. It's not my news story. And they have a right to worship without intrusion by journalists like me or the government for that matter. For Rebel News here at Grace Life Church, west of Edmonton, where on Tuesday, Pastor Coates will tick over three weeks in provincial custody for the crime of saying Christian worship service. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed. Every day, every hour, every second that Pastor James Coates is in jail is a disgrace. It's an affront to our constitution, to our charter of rights and freedoms, and to people all around the world who worship God or practice religion in any capacity. Pastor James Coates should be released. That much is obvious. And that wraps it up. For us here on the Ezra Levant Show from our studio in Calgary, it's March 8th, and rather than ending it off as Ezra does by saying, keep fighting for freedom, I'll simply say, God save the Queen.